Well, good morning, all nations. Let me add my welcome to you all this morning. We're now well into our preaching series, working our way through the book of Exodus. And we've arrived this morning at the plagues, probably one of the more graphic parts of the book. Um, I'm obviously not going to be able to get through all of them today. So um, as not being a particular fan of insects or reptiles, we're going to metaphorically be diving into the river of blood this morning, which is, of course, the first plague that come, we come across in Exodus chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, um, have, those, have that chapter ready for us to read a bit later on. I'm going to start by praying. Lord, we thank you for the assurance we find in you. Thank you for biblical moments like this, where we get to see you in all your magnificence. Lord, amaze us again at who you are and what you can do. Make it real in our hearts again this morning. Holy Spirit, raise our heads once more to, the, to see the work of your hands and the glory that we find in Christ Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you've uh, had the chance to watch the movie Gods and Kings. On the whole, a movie I would advise not wasting uh, two and a half hours of your life on. Uh, far better to use your time watching the 1956 film, The Ten Commandments. Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston at their very finest. Check that one out. The only part of Gods and Kings I would say is worthy of your attention would be the storytelling around the plagues. These were very graphic and very powerful scenes, mostly CGI, I would say, but nonetheless pretty impressive. The, the plague of frogs is particularly worth a watch. There's a moment where Pharaoh's walking back into his palace there's a carpet of frogs on the floor and you can hear the crunching sound as he steps on them. And there's also a scene where his wife is frantically trying to get the frogs out of their bed. Um, so check that part out anyway. So we're going to be looking at this part of the book of Exodus this morning, which will be the first part of what is essentially a series of 10 disasters God brings down upon Pharaoh and his people in a demonstration that he won't be challenged as the true God over heaven and earth. And we're going to get to see that because of um, a sinful, hard-hearted man so wrapped up in his own God complex, one plague is never going to be enough. And the story of the plagues begins with a very fatal question, an eternal question, by the way, that's uttered by every generation since. A very ancient question with a very modern familiarity about it. So we start off in Exodus 5, verse 2, where Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice. It's interesting to note that at the time of this particular pharaoh, there were 114 gods at work in the infrastructure of Egyptian culture. 
covering every conceivable aspect of nature and the elements, including the sun, the sky, the earth, and everything on it and within it. And Pharaoh himself considered himself top of the pile, top dog, God above all gods. He had no problem with all the other gods. In fact, they came in quite useful at times. He didn't even mind the Hebrews having their own God either, so long as none of them got to say to him uh, what you get to do in your life. No one will tell me what to do. And there's a familiar modern ring to that, isn't there? I don't know how many recognised gods are worshipped today across the world. Many thousands, I expect, particularly if you factor in the many material gods we choose to worship. The world has perhaps never been more spiritual in its pursuit of well-being as it is today. I'm guessing, though, that still the most common response those faced with a person of faith is still, I'm happy to believe in whoever, I'm happy for you to believe in whoever you choose to believe in, but no one tells me how to live my life. I'm sure most of us have heard that reply at some point or another. Maybe that's you right now. Maybe a statement like that has become firmly bedded into the philosophy of your life. I'm even aware of the very subtle ways similar phrases like these can find their way into my language. Who, who gets to tell me how to live my life? I'm hoping that there aren't <coughs> uh, many out there who regard themselves as gods today. I guess there may be a few guys on a golf course uh, birdie a hole and you think you can take on the world. Uh, maybe in the gym, you know, I've got a four pack now, I've got two to go. Um, you know, maybe that's you. Maybe sat behind a big desk at work, maybe leading a team in your four by four. You know, that's a big one, isn't it? Four floors up, hanging from the rafters of a roof with a 70 ton crane rumbling in the background, tool belt strapped on. You can very soon feel godlike, I can tell you. Perhaps we're not at the same level as Pharaoh, but the subtleties of a bit of a complex like that can still often filter in under the radar of our lives too, can't they? So let me tell you about another film. This is, this is actually worth a watch, mainly because it involves copious amounts of rugby and centers around a theme of triumph against the odds, two things that will always set my heart beating a bit faster. And it is, of course, the film Invictus, starring Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon, which centered around the very famous South African Rugby World Cup victory in 1995. Yay, lots of cheering out there from our South African brothers and sisters. Not quite as impressive as 2003 though, I have to say that. 
The film Invictus was titled after the very famous poem by William Ernest Henley. And the last verse of this poem gets quoted right at the end of the film. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Stirring stuff, isn't it? Deliberately provoking a strong emotion in all those that have just seen the film. How easy is it to be led into a sense of one's own divinity? I am the captain of my soul. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a real sucker for all of that. I remember coming out of a Rocky Three movie in 1982. Remember that one? The, the Eye of the Tiger one? I was convinced I could take on anyone. Oh, to be 19 again. I am the captain of my soul and no one gets to tell me otherwise. Pharaoh finds, him at the ex uh, finds himself at the extreme end of this conflict, uh, complex. Who is this God that I should obey his voice? But, you know, his question is about to be brutally answered by the master architect of the universe, the maestro of every element, every living being and cell is about to answer a challenger, is trying to make a futile claim on what belongs to him. This is a Wizard of Oz, mo Wizard of Oz moment. Um, this is uh, movie theme week, by the way, just in case you're wondering. You remember the great Oz, the, the scene in the Emerald Castle, and sat behind, hidden behind his curtain, frantically pulling away at his levers, firing off pyrotechnics and bellowing his orders. This is a moment like this for Pharaoh. He's about to be exposed for the God he isn't. This time not by a, a tiny inquisitive dog, but by a God who goes by the name of I am who I am. And my answer to your question is coming your way. Thus says the Lord, by this you will know that I am Lord. Let's find Exodus 7, verse 14 to 25, and Jess is going to read that for us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. 
The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned, went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water from the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Thank you, Jess. Uh, what is worth knowing here is that the Nile wasn't just a, a pretty place for Egypt to build its cities. This wasn't Henley on Thames. There weren't pleasure cruises gliding gently alongside its banks or lazy Sunday afternoon punting going on. The Nile for the Egyptians was their very life source. They depended on it for everything in order to survive. And every six months, the Nile would swell and bring rich deposits of sediments into its waters, almost like a, a nutrient soup flooding into the Nile, which would then be used as fertilizer for the land, allowing farmers to have not just one crop, but two crops every year. The Nile also was teeming with fish. And of course, it's water sustained every single part of Egyptian life. In fact, without the Nile, this ancient civilization would not have filled our history books with such wonder. And the Nile had its own god. In fact, a goddess named Happy. And here she is. Yes, she is actually called Happy. And in the Egyptian culture, they believed that so long as the people remained happy, God is happy every six months, would bring into the Nile this nutrient soup that would enrich them again and again and add their wealth, add to their wealth, ultimately keeping them happy. What a wonderful cycle of wealth and prosperity, of abundance and apparently never-ending happiness. This is until the God, not just of the Nile, 
But if the universe calls time and turns off its supply, God knew that if he wanted the attention of a nation, you go after its happiness. I guess after breathing and food, happiness has got to be the next base human compulsion we look to to survive, isn't it? We all go after it. We all pursue it, don't we? Knowing we're happy is another way of almost checking we're still alive. It's one of those vital signs that we measure the goodness of our lives against. Happiness attaches itself uh, to the meaning and purpose of all we do. And for those of us in Christ, it gets to sit at the very core of our being, doesn't it? Gym lovers and, and athletes will know that uh, about this. If our, our muscular core isn't working, if the strength around the central axis of our bodies is missing, much of the rest of it will be out of sync and out of balance. Our bodies will then begin to unhealthily compensate for the deficiencies around this central part of our body. Happiness works in much the same way. In the central place of our happiness, the central place of our significance and well-being is elsewhere. If it's elsewhere, if our life plan is <coughs> centered around self-sufficiency or self-rule, if it's not satisfied at its core by the person of Jesus Christ, we'll spend a lifetime compensating and searching for alternatives, latching on to the next passing thing that gives us meaning and purpose. Pharaoh was so dysfunctional at his core, so lost in his God complex, so wrapped up at being the captain of his soul, not even the sight of his cities drowning in the stench of rotten blood could turn his fossilized heart towards the glory and magnificence of a greater God. There's a lot of theological debate out there as to why God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And that's a whole sermon right there, perhaps for another day. But where I've settled myself with this is that Pharaoh already tragically had a hardened heart. My reading of Exodus has brought me to the understanding that this, that it was already dead to the prospect of coming under the authority of a greater God. The first five plagues have, has Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And it's interesting to see that it's not until the sixth plague that we are clear that God begins to do it for him. And you know that there'll, there'll always be a degree of mystery around that. God, at the very least, chose to allow him to remain in a state of rebellion. And who's to say that God doesn't get to do that with us at times? If our rebellion, if our rejection of him remains so deeply embedded in our lives, if his offer of life in all its fullness, the great joy that we find in Jesus, 
if we can't be amazed enough by him to give away the captain of my soul for the king of my heart. He will leave us alone to work out life with all its alternatives and compromises. Reading through our passage, that's exactly where we find Pharaoh working out the consequences of life outside the submission to a greater God than himself. Instead of saying, you know what, I've seen enough. Here, take my puny little captain's badge. I know when I'm outranked. Instead, he fell back on his magicians and their secret arts, who seemed to do a great job, by the way, um, of summoning more blood to flow into the river. They didn't solve the problem. They added to it. Their solution was a, a desperate compromise. They'd lost their happiness. This mighty river teeming with life, with its nutrient-rich soup constantly flowing into their lives, sustaining them and providing for all their needs, had died. Happiness had gone. The best they could do was frantically dig makeshift trenches alongside the Nile in, in a desperate hope fresh water would rise up once more. And then perhaps the saddest line of this whole passage. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He'd essentially just witnessed his power response to God fail him. With their secret arts, his magicians did nothing more than just add blood to an already blood-filled river. He'd looked on while his subjects then tore at the earth with their fingernails for any sign of happy would return. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take even this to heart. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I have no doubt Pharaoh, if he could, would have probably had these lines inscribed in gold on the inside of his sarcophagus. And how often do we get inspiring mantras like that thrown at us? I remember hearing this at the end of the film Invictus, by the way, which means unconquerable, a big red, red flag clue right there. I'm feeling, yes, yes, I am, that's me. I've just overdosed on rugby and I'm right there with this one. If Morgan Freeman says it, it's got to be true, hasn't it? I did, thankfully, come back down to earth and give did give myself time to properly consider what these lines were really trying to sell me. Because when I read between the lines, I realized that what was actually on offer to me here 
in this very believable, very reasonable, very attractive alternative to life was in fact an ideal. An ideal that told me that if I cut loose from all the other influences of my life, if I took guidance and counsel from uh, no one else other than my own wisdom and my own self-importance, if I abandoned truth for a wishy-washy state of anything goes, if I allow sin to be as no longer a, 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 an obstacle to my future, to my health, my conscience, to my sense of self-worth, then I can indeed become the captain of my soul, the centre of my world, the author of my own destiny. And quite honestly, what a frightening prospect that would be. Besides which, I, I would be the last person I would want to put in charge of my life. And I think Jess would probably want to agree with me on that one. Would I really want to abandon the king of my heart for the captain of my soul? Would I really want to give such a precious gift away so cheaply? The cry of his heart to let my people go extends to all those held captive to self. Thank God. To those held captive by the captain of my soul. To those who have lost the ability to sing. It's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me. It's all about you. My Jesus, my saviour, Lord, there is none like you. Let me ask you this. Can you still sing words like that and still feel your heart miss a beat? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Pharaoh asked this question with a hard and dead heart. We get to ask it with open and hungry ones. And our answer gets to be, Jesus. Do you need to give away the captain of your soul for the king of your heart this morning? I'm going to ask you to stand, if you can, wherever you are. I'm going to pray. Lord, would you come and help us to do that today? Lord, where we've got lost in the lie that we can be far happier in life going it alone, far happier if we take over control of our future from you. Lord, set us free from that lie this morning. Lord, where we've pulled out the anchor and set ourselves adrift, where perhaps we're just clinging on right now, come and take your place again in the very core of our being. Jesus, come and be king again in that place for us today. Lord, we give you our hearts back. Come and rule in them once more. Amen.